Over the span of at least three years, one woman impersonated multiple people, leaving at least 11 victims on the other end of a catfishing scheme. This catfishing ploy spanned over two countries, involving celebrities, approximately 42 police officers, and the execution of 39 search warrants. And you've probably never heard of it. This is the story of the ghost of Easterville. Detective unit, friends and associates, you know what time it is. It's 18.01 on the dot, to be precise. Probably not when you are watching this, but maybe you are. And then the words have collided, the universes have collided. Yeah, can you tell I have done the whole day shift yet again? And this is my favorite freaking time of day. Every week I sit my fat ass down and I tell you the true crime story. If you usually skip this part to the next timestamp and you haven't already... <laughs> Well, hey, welcome, you must be new here. And also, stick around, because if you have read the community post, you know I'm looking into changing the channel name, and I would like the change to stick, so it's permanent. <laughs> the immigrant advisor. Temporary, permanent, choose it, choose the correct word. So, let me know in the comments if you have skipped that community post, and this is the first time that you're hearing of this random girl wanting to change her name to find it more SEO friendly, to make it rather more SEO friendly, for you to find it more Googleable online and for me to reach out to more people. If there are any experts in the comments, let me know what that channel name should be like. Should it revolve around my love for deep dives and going into rabbit holes or should it just be like my name? The first name, I don't know. I don't know, that's why I need your help. The second thing I ask you not to skip this timestamp for, is a research topic. So, let me back up. You know how last week I have said I am sharing with you the podcast episode because I have been taking some time to research onto a deeper topic and a Netflix documentary. Well, that research is written up, I just kind of need to structure it, make that script right, but now the dilemma that I have is whether I should do it whether I should actually sit down and talk about this individual. So I'm going to share the topic with you, which is one of the very few times I have done this. And then again, you decide, should you wish to hear the story of a Tinder swindler? If you haven't watched the documentary, I would suggest you do. It is really well done. That's not why. After the documentary, as you know, I like doing deep dives, you know, finding information that hasn't been provided in there. So that's why I have been waiting for the third part of a podcast episode. So now, having everything, having done the what Netflix didn't tell you technically as my research, I have also been following, you know, where the case is now, what Simon Levy Levi has been up to since then. And I'm not sure if I should be giving him more publicity, to put it just abruptly. I would, of course, focus on all of the victims that the documentary doesn't cover, but at the same time, that would mean more exposure to this man who doesn't really need it, and has a TikTok account now, and has Cameo. Like, who the fuck pays on Cameo for a guy that swindled people? Make it make sense. Make it make sense. So, you decide. If you want to hear what Netflix didn't tell you about Tinder Swindler, well, that's easy for me. I just need to script it, right? And then sit my fat ass again, probably later this week or next week, and tell you that story. 
And that brings us to the story of the week, because, as you can tell, that is not the story that I'm telling you. So let me tell you how we got here, how we got to this topic, which is my favorite thing to do. So if you are not newbie to this channel, if you are, by the way, welcome, I'm glad to have you here, you will hear about this obsession a lot. But if you haven't, you have probably heard me speak about my love for 2020. I have done so many cases purely after having watched the 2020 episode on NBC on a show. It's just a, such an addictive show for me. It's like what reality TV is for so many people. So on Saturday, I was just chilling, avoiding doing actual research on the topic that I have just mentioned, because I had the internal struggle of should I do it, should I not? And then I just switched on YouTube, and I was looking for another ABC episode, which is, you know, a hard task, finding an ABC 2020 episode on something that I haven't watched. And, you know, in the description, but like one of the suggestions that came up for me was this 2017 episode that was called Ghost of Easterville. And if you are here because of clickbait, because when you see the title Ghost of Easterville, you're like, mm, what the hell is that about? Well, I fell for it too, okay? So we're all in the same boat. So after watching the full episode, then watching a catfish episode on the same case, and then reading through the court documents, we are here. It was just inevitable. <laughs> I was like, I need to speak to somebody about this. Because if I have heard of this case, and it made me feel all of the iffy feelings that I feel, then I have to pass it on to you to see if you have the same opinion. Because this is insane. And this woman is out. She could still scam people. That is one of the main reasons why I set my ass down. I was like, no, no, I need to check the core documents. I need to find all of the information here, because this makes no sense. Why is she out? And her interviews, guys, guys, you have no idea what you're in for. So, without further ado, let's just dive in. Maya is the name. Go on bed is the game. No, let's run the dumb intro. It's a tradition. It's a tradition. What is gone bad, you may wonder? Gone Bad is this series that I do on this channel where I sit on my fat ass and I tell you a story about a person that, like you and me, has just been living an ordinary life up until a certain point when they just snapped. Something just changed. And from that point on, they have committed to the life of crime. Sometimes they stopped and they say they won't do it ever again. And then it's upon us to judge and to make that decision for ourselves. Do we believe them? Do we not? You're in a silly, goofy mood today, aren't you? Yep, our story starts in Easterville. <laughs> I am smirking because the way that Easterville has been described throughout every coverage that I have watched is like as the most undesirable place to have ever lived in. I, I have never heard somebody describe the place where a true crime story has happened this way. Our story happens between 2012 and 2017 in Easterville, which is based in Canada and is described as the very edge of the civilized world. With the population of just about 2,000 people, you can kind of get why. People have also described it like the most deserted place on Earth. And here is where we will meet Max and Nev from the popular MTV series Catfish. 
They just sit down and open up the email the way they do if you have watched the show a million times. And this time the email is from a model that's called Paris Roxanne. And she is the internet celebrity, has a ton of followers, even for 2017, when the boys are sitting down to open up her email. And it's not just that she's famous, and that's why they know her name. It's the fact that they have met her before. Paris has reached out to them, this time in 2017, as the person that catfished her before is now out of jail. And she just wants to make sure that what happened to her and another person that was part of this catfishing scheme doesn't happen to anybody else. So looking at her email, Max and Nev recall the story and recall why Paris was in touch with them in the first place. And the story involves another celebrity called Chris Anderson, better known as the Birdman, who was this NBA player who, prior to meeting Paris, has been on a two-year suspension from the NBA because he violated their drug abuse policy. During that time, he turned his life around. He invested some time in rehab, he also volunteered with kids, and then it all began. The boys remember that Paris had told them it all started with her liking a picture on Chris's Anderson official Facebook page, believing that this picture had been posted by Chris Anderson himself. They chatted, they exchanged some pictures. Chris would be sending pictures of himself in the mirror, whereas Paris did send a few nude pictures of herself. Then it all escalated quickly. They arranged to meet up in Colorado to spend a weekend together. And at the weekend's end, Paris would return home and start getting threatening messages. And then her nudes were leaked. Due to the threatening messages, though, Paris did confess to her sending nudes to this man, who was Chris Anderson, the Birdman, and she just fessed up to her mom. She didn't know what else to do. And because of that, the police had been called. And then the police realized that Paris Roxanne has been introducing herself online as an 18-year-old, but rather she was actually 17. Now, because of the threats and because her mom called the cops, the Crimes Against Children investigation unit would get involved. I was 17. So when I tell my mom, she flipped and called the cops. We start today with that developing story. Investigators seizing computers from the Larkspur home of Chris Bergman Anderson. This is being called an Internet Crimes Against Children investigation. Chris was under investigation for child pornography. Breaking news on the DenverChannel.com involving the Nuggets' Chris the Birdman Anderson. It was all over the news, and it looked bad. As soon as the police got involved and they traced back all of the emails, all of the chats, and the phone logs, they would discover an IP address based in this village in the middle of nowhere called Easterville in Canada. And before they knock on the door of the catfish and we learn who this person is, let us backtrack and talk about this ploy in as much detail as I could find online because of the court documents available. Because this truly is one of the most mind-blowing catfish stories that I have ever heard. So let me bring you back to the fall of 2011. This is where we meet Paris Dunn, rather Paris Roxanne as her stage name. Even at that point, in 2011, she had about 25,000 Twitter followers, 
87,000 on Facebook, and then she had the biggest following on Instagram, almost 400,000. She was 17 years old at the time, and she just started flirting with pro athletes online. Paris definitely had a type, and Chris Anderson caught her eye on Facebook. We have the most amount of information on the Birdman, and I think a lot of it is actually relevant. Like, a ton of it is about, obviously, his basketball career, but I think there are particular bits and pieces in his life that I just can't deny, and people don't really mention them online. And I definitely think that the catfish behind this whole scheme knew about a couple of them, that she had done her research. It just makes this a lot more premeditated than you would even think. So let us discuss the relevant bits and pieces about Chris Anderson's life that we know of. We know that Chris Anderson's family moved to Texas from California when he was only four years old. Now, his dad moved the family there on the basis of this loan that he got in order to buy this property, but after only a few months, he just took off with the loan money, meaning that he just abandoned his young wife and three children. So, of course, the next couple of years were really just struggle for these kids. Chris and his siblings would get shipped off to live with relatives, when he was 11, he also stayed with his grandfather and was also sent to this youth home that was near Houston. The true country boy. Fans related to him as a person. There you can see the couple of tattoos. Mark Bryant has represented Anderson from the beginning of his career. He's also a mentor and father figure. I guess I'm probably one of the biggest collector of Chris's stuff. That giddy family member that collects the stuff. <laughs> he was touched by young Chris's big heart and hardscrabble Texas roots. Well, Chris grew up in a, a boy's home for several years. Um, his mom got him back and he had a tough childhood down there. In high school, Chris really showcased his talent, so he was quite popular and was also excelling at basketball. So it came as no surprise when, during his senior year, the University of Houston offered him a scholarship. However, then the coaches jumped on, basically saying that he doesn't have the grades to match up his basketball excellence, so he was withdrawn from that offer of a scholarship, and rather, he enrolled in a nearby Blinn College. During this college, he was again just playing among the junior college players, and then he declared for the NBA draft. But here, he forgot to submit paperwork in time, so again, he was declared ineligible. So, unable to return to school now, for the next three years, he would just be playing these minor league hoops. And then his NBA debut would start when he started playing for the Nuggets in 2001. Here, he would be given the infamous nickname Birdman by his teammates. Some say that it is because he moved around so much and played for so many different teams. A lot of people, though, say that it is because of his long arms and just the leaping ability when he is jumping for those hoops. I know nothing about basketball, yes. Now, Chris was known mostly for his tats, but also, whenever he would have a day off, he would stop by his home for abused children. He, as we know, had lived in a youth home, so he would relate to them. He would understand the isolation that these kids struggled with. Most time, during those visits, he would just take those kids to a basketball court and he would just sit and joke with them, saying, if I can do it, so can you. 
For the next few years, up until 2005, things were looking up for Chris. He was a fan favorite, he spent three seasons playing for Denver, and then signed a contract for New Orleans Hornets. But then Hurricane Katrina hit. This meant that Hornets, so the team that he had just signed up for, had to move to Oklahoma for the 2005-2006 to season, and here Anderson was just depressed with this move. He suddenly turned his life around in a negative way, he was overweight, he was sort of on the bench, not really playing much, and he would start going out regularly, just drinking and partying. So in 2006, when screened for drugs, the test came out as positive, and he was suspended for the next two years. During that time, he decided to turn his life around. He decided, like, this is what it is, like, I have committed my life to basketball, if I want to be taken seriously again, I have to turn it around. He would go to rehab, he would hit the gym for a few hours at a time, and then he headed to the tattoo parlor. This is when tattoos came into play even more than they did before. So 2008, up until the point where we are getting back to our story in 2011, he is sober, he is in best shape of his life, and he is back playing for the Nuggets. In his free time, he would help out kids and was just beloved by the community. So you can see how when these news hit, it came as a surprise, and also people started immediately turning to the perverse thoughts. Was anything that Chris Anderson did innocent, or was everything really just a cover? But now let me clue you in into Catfish's point of view. So she had just created a Facebook profile for Chris Anderson. At the time, from everything I read, it was much easier to get your profile verified, to have it with a blue tick. So, this wasn't like a fan account, again, from everything I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, this was actual profile, as if, you know, an actual page by the celebrity. So this catfish, for whatever reason, starts creating profiles for different celebrities. From what I read, I know that definitely she has done it for Eminem and for, like, other celebrities as well, and then she created one for the Birdman, for Chris Anderson. Now, this profile somehow got verified, and she would even post, like, different statuses from it. On one such status, Paris Roxanne responds with a comment. And the comment from, again, what I've seen just said, call me, and then it actually left her number. And Paris would say she thought nothing of it. She went back to sleep and was like, yeah, I mean, this is sort of like what I do on, like, other, you know, player websites or Facebook profiles. Like, nothing is gonna come of it. But then, the next day, she took the bait because the catfish responded. So, I was on my Facebook account and I seen Chris, the basketball player, he said they had a win. That his team had a win? Yeah, on his status. And on the comments, in showed Paris, she said, hey, text me, whatever. And she wrote her number there. And he wasn't paying attention to her. According to the catfish, Chris wasn't responding. He wasn't paying attention to Paris. So she did. And she responds as Chris. She makes this really convoluted from this interview 
from what I've gathered, she is behind Chris's profile. So she is the one that is responding as Chris, not as herself. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this predicament. So she goes to sleep not expecting anything out of that. And then the next day, Paris actually responds back to who she thought was Chris. And this is how the conversation starts. And from this point, it escalates quite quickly. I ended up receiving a direct message from him on Facebook. Do you remember what it said? I think it said, like, hey, I see you're a fan. And what did you think? A little skeptical that he would just write, but being 17, I was an excited girl. So excited, she can hardly believe it's him. And maybe she shouldn't. Their conversations quickly jump from Facebook to email, texting, and most convincingly, selfies. And then that's the first one I ever got. Beginning with this photo snapped in a mirror. Unmistakably, Chris Anderson. I was like, oh, it's real then, you know? I mean, he would send selfies all the time like this. But was there a caption? I mean, did he say anything? It was just, hello, here's a pic. Send the selfie back, you know? Paris later sends this picture of herself wearing Anderson's number 11. She texts, you like it? And here's back, I love, you're beautiful. This is supposed to be Chris Anderson's Facebook page where he puts, my girl looks better in my jersey than I do. Because Responding I had, to the picture I had of you in the jersey. I sent a picture of me in this jersey. That was his wallpaper. They're now in a whirlwind online relationship, swapping more pictures. Becoming friends, you know, sending the selfies. He had a pit bull named Hannibal, and, you know, it was just a baby, so it was fun. Paris herself doesn't mention that she put her phone number on the status. Rather, she says that Chris Anderson got into her DMs, saying, hey, I see you are a fan, and she believed that it was truly him. I mean, again, from what I gathered, like, if his profile was actually verified, wouldn't you? Like, wouldn't you believe? 17, you would believe, like, somebody might actually be after you, especially if you look like Paris, okay? If you are a model with this amount of following, why wouldn't you buy into that story? So, she just wrote back saying, hey, and then he asked, what are you doing? And the conversation continued. They would end up exchanging pictures with one another. At first, it started off with selfies, then Chris would send just, like, random pictures of him, and also, like, some shirtless pictures in the mirror, to which Paris followed by sending some provocative pictures of herself. Back to the catfish, this is when she said she started feeling uncomfortable, after having received the nudes from Paris. And she was telling her friend how she wants to stop it all, like, she was getting all of these pings, and at this point she was chatting with somebody else. But her friend told her, in order to get out of this uncomfortable situation, just hook the two of them up. Now, pin this friend in the back of your head, because we're gonna be speaking about this person that we know only by the initials from the court documents. Just pin them in the back of your head, and if I manage, I will play the catfish clip now, and you will understand a bit better as to why. Because this person might not be a friend at all. It might be yet another victim. So I texted Paris. I said, hey, it's Chris. And then I went to bed, I left it alone, and I woke up and she said, how was your day? And I said, it's okay, how, was your, how are you? Like, it was like that. And then she started sending pictures. And it started to get uncomfortable. So I told my friend 
I'm just gonna tell this girl, you know, not really good. Wait a second. Who's the Texas woman? Back from the catfish to Paris, this is when she gets a message from somebody else. And this person's name is Tom Taylor, and he introduces himself to Paris as Chris's best friend. With that, like, I have heard so much about you, you know, you and Chris would be so great together. And at this point, Paris is a bit suspicious. But yet again, she googles the person, and the person is right there. He is a professional gamer. And again, things don't really line up. For example, there is this red flag on the Facebook profile where both Chris's and Tom's profile have the phone number with this distinct area code, 204. She questions Tom about it and he just says, oh, you know, that's my Google number. And Paris says because she was 17, again, she believed it. So, on the surface, everything is legit. Then, a guy calling himself Tom Taylor also connects with Paris online. Did you know who Tom Taylor was? I had no was? idea. He told me in the message he was best friends with Chris Anderson. If you Google Tom Taylor, he's right there, a professional video gamer. And that's who Paris thinks she's talking to. What did the message say? Um, it was like, hey, I see you, like, started talking to Chris Anderson. I know you're a fan. One thing did puzzle Paris, though, and if she only paid more attention, because it would become deeply important later. The phone numbers she has for both Chris Anderson and Tom Taylor have an odd area code from outside the U.S. Tom has an explanation. He always does. He just said, oh, it's my Google number. You know, it's all good. Me being 17 and dumb, I just believed it. The reason why this other person was introduced in this whole catfish ploy was to egg Paris on, to really make her believe in this story, to really make her believe that Chris Anderson exists, that he's really interested in meeting her. So, this Tom Taylor guy starts basically chatting like, oh my god, the two of you should meet, when are you going to meet, like, you know, when is the date going to fall? And under that pressure, this is when the nudes start being sent from Paris's side, and they finally do agree to meet up. Chris would end up buying a plane ticket for Paris, and she would go to spend the weekend with him. So, she would fly from LA to Denver area. And during that weekend, Paris will say herself, she met Chris Anderson, and they had a great time, it was fun, but then, at a couple of moments again, she thought things weren't adding up, and she was completely ignoring them. Things that didn't add up, for example, there were some conversational points that kind of just got missed in translation. Chris, for example, mentioned did Paris bring her Victoria's Secret stuff that she said in the messages that he will bring, and Paris kind of just looked at him skeptically, like, what Victoria's Secret stuff? Then there was this trip to Africa that, again, Paris was like, we have never spoken about it. But she's just shrugging this off. The biggest red flag, in retrospect, should have been when Chris Anderson had no idea who Tom Taylor, his supposed best friend, was. I said, well, Tom said... He's like, who's Tom? And I was like, your best friend. And he was like, I don't know a Tom. A bizarre disconnect. Maybe the NBA player has Paris confused with another woman. That's a big red flag. It was. 
I thought he was messing around when he was like, who's Tom? I was like, no. But you don't really connect any dots. Speaking of Tom, the next day he starts texting Paris again, asking her how the night went, so this is still during that weekend, and Paris is still with Chris. He's, you know, asking her for all the details, like how did it go, just go into the room, like take pictures with his head, you know, and in hindsight, again, this is kind of a red flag, it is a bit weird, but when thinking about it then and there, if this is this man's best friend, he's just happy that his matchmaking had worked. But he was really sweet in the morning, and then he left to go to practice, and I stayed and I texted Tom the whole time, and he was like, how's it going? Oh, you should go look in his closet, take a picture with his hat on, and I was like, no, I wasn't gonna go look into somebody's stuff, yeah, so... Weird. So, after that, with Chris, it was, like, really good, you know? You guys really liked each other. Yeah. And then drove me back to the airport. Was there talk about, like, okay, well, we'll see Yeah, it was, like, a again. next time, yeah. So it was all nice, ended nicely, and then I went home. The weekend as a whole was a success. Paris did most definitely meet Chris Anderson and spend the weekend with him, then he dropped her off to the airport, and she just goes on with her life. Like, I don't think she ever expected a relationship out of this. She just goes back home. And this is when things start to turn. This is when both Chris and his best friend Tom almost merge into a same person. They start spamming Paris with very similar messages. Both of them have apparently already mentioned they were into Call of Duty, and both of them suddenly had a beef with this one player, and they wanted Paris to go, I think it was Indiana, I'll play the interview if available, to go to steal this Call of Duty player's password, so their login details. I don't know, in order for them to log in and then F it all up, or for them to change the account details so that it reflects that it is Chris's or Tom's account. Again, they just started putting pressure on Paris, both of them. So the messages have just completely shifted from the Birdman and this weekend and the two of them hooking up and Tom basically being the matchmaker to just being this call of duty, go there, fly there for us, we'll buy you stuff in return, just go there and, you know, get us these details. And Paris, under this pressure, crumbled. And finally, she said, no, I'm not doing this. And then Chris and Tom were obsessed with Call of Duty, right? Yeah, this Xbox. There's this talk of this guy that Tom can't effing stand. I forget the name of the guy, but he lived in Indiana. The guy was beating him at his game. Beating him on Call of Duty? On Call of Duty, and he couldn't stand it. So they wanted to set me up to fly to Indiana to go steal his game account and password. So they can hack it and break it all. So this is the way. weirdest part of the yeah. whole story. What? Okay, so Shelly, as Chris and Tom said to you... They were both going at me. I got pressure and pressure, and they were going crazier and crazier, and Chris was offering me purses. You know, I went back and forth on it because I was getting so pressured, I couldn't stand it. And then I said, you know what, I'm not doing it. It set them off. The Chris and the Tom were saying, I'm going to send somebody down there to rape you and kill you and throw you on the side of the street. And that's when it, I just turned off my phone, like an hour later. When I turned that phone on, as Chris Anderson, she said, I'm going to post your nude pictures. That's when it got really heavy. With Paris refusing to go and steal these details, with her refusing to comply, this catfish starts threatening her. 
Perry is starting receiving the messages that this catfish is going to send somebody where she lives, that they are going to have her raped and killed and thrown on the side of the street. Something just went and just set him off. Are you scared? I was scared. I did not like that. And then another frightening threat. Taylor telling Paris that his friend Anderson shared her nude photos with him. Essentially, the catfish was using Tom to threaten Paris, to say, not only am I going to physically harm you, but those naked photos you sent Chris, I have them. He showed them to me. He sends Paris a link. She clicks, and to her horror, there are her nude photos, all posted on the Internet for anyone to see. And I see just all my pictures, my address, my phone number. And these are nude pictures. These are nude photos of me. All my pictures I had sent Chris. All my Chris Anderson pictures. This is pretty creepy stuff. Oh, God, it was terrible. According to Paris, this next thing came out all of a sudden. So after the threats, this person, as Tom, decided to leak all of the nudes that Paris sent to Chris and Chris only. So from Tom, she received a text message with a link to all of her nudes already leaked. According to Paris, this link also contained the addresses to her house, to her mom's place, to their phone numbers, and this is why she actually went to her mom, because now she knew the threat was real and she was horrified. From the catfish's point of view, however, this isn't really how it happened. From her point of view, she was, after that weekend, still getting spam by Paris. You know, she did create that fake account, and that is where she's getting all of these spam messages, but she is getting all of these pings, and she has already moved on. What that means is probably to another victim, as we will learn, but she's now getting annoyed. She just wants to move on and wants this to stop. And that is why she decides to start sending those threats. She didn't mean them, of course. No, when she posted a link with all of the nudes exposed, she didn't mean it. She just wanted to show her, to shut Paris up. I said, prove it. She sent me a bunch of pictures with a dog in his house. And then... He flew her home and said, we had fun. I'd like to see you again. Then she freaked out one morning. Paris was swearing at me and calling me all kinds of names. Well, him. Did so you I ever... went on Facebook and seen he was with somebody else. With another girl? Yeah. So that would have been a great opportunity to end it. To yeah. Like... But she kept to... going on and on. And I was trying to text somebody else and her thing kept popping up. I was annoyed. And I wanted her to shut up go away. And that's why you texted those awful threats to Paris, mm -hmm. hoping she would go away. Yeah. And then to kind of show her that you meant business, you posted those pictures of Paris. Yeah, and I showed her. You showed her, and that's what made her go to the cops. Yeah. At this point, though, and this just shows how calculated this person really is, again, the catfisher just doesn't stop there. She just doesn't decide, like, okay, even if this was a true story, then, that you are supposed to believe, and this person is pinging, like, it's pestering you, you eventually decide, like, okay, I'm gonna threaten them, and that's it. No. Once, obviously, Paris went to her mom to sort of expose this story, then this catfish created yet another fake account, now posing to be Paris's mom. And as you would expect, 
This part of the catfishing ploy does involve extortion, blackmail to a certain degree. Because at this point, what becomes relevant is Paris's age. As I mentioned, she was 17 at the time. Now, the legal age of consent in Colorado would be 15. But because of the nude pictures that were shared, and because Chris was rather in possession of those nude pictures, that means that he is in possession of child pornography. The math ain't mathing, I know that's the way that I have found it online. So at the time, age of consent was 15, but she still counted as a child, as 17, so he was in possession of child pornography. So this catfish decides to create a fake account as Paris's mom and to start extorting Chris. So, basically, what she was saying, she's going to ruin his career and life because he's going to be a registered sex offender if this comes out. So, as fake Paris's mom, this catfish starts demanding that Chris pays up about $3,000. At this point, this reaches Chris's lawyer, called Mark Bryant. And by this point, Mark basically was like a second father to Chris, rather the father that he never had, because the bitch that was his father abandoned him and his family. So he really empathized with him, he knew everything about his childhood, and he kind of took him under his wing. So when this happened, he knew how this will look upon Chris's career, that this is going to ruin him forever, that there is no coming back from this, because people are going to start viewing him and everything he has done in terms of the volunteering work as something perverse, but also they're gonna look at him as a pedophile, no matter what. They're gonna look at it as if he was actually sleeping with kids, rather than a 17-year-old woman who consented to it. So what, man? And it's the girl's mother. What does she say? I know what you did. It's an email, supposedly, from Paris Dunn's mother, telling Anderson that spending the weekend with her daughter was a huge crime, because Paris is underage, barely 17. That's news to Anderson. She booked through a travel agent of Chris's and gave a date of birth in March 21, and how did she come through the airport and everything else was security with that date of birth? She's threatening to ruin Anderson's life and career, unless he pays thousands of dollars. Uh, full extortion. So she's threatening to ruin Chris's oh, yeah. career. You're going to get sued, and he's going to go to prison, and, you know, all these threats. People started putting labels on him, asking why is a pedophile allowed in the NBA, which led to him being let go of, and then, of course, him losing on all of the endorsements, all of the sponsorship, People started speculating, will he ever be allowed back in the NBA? Should he? Because the investigation was still happening. And as you will hear mentioned in these interviews, and as you have probably conjured up in your head already, what the police was going to find once they obtained the search warrant and they finally put him under arrest and they searched his house, is the communication, is the conversations between him and Paris herself. So, of course, on the surface, this looks like the clear-cut case. This looks like he has communicated with Paris, he is in the possession of her nudes, meaning that there is nothing else there to even look at. He is in the possession of child pornography. However, as we know, this is layered. It is layered because Paris lied about her age. It is layered because the lawyer did say that she actually said she was 21, and that's the date that she filled out when she was flying out to meet with Chris. 
And then, of course, it is layered because of all of the catfishing ploy that took place, and that none of them knew at that point that they had an intermediary in between of their conversations. It was hard on Chris, and people were putting labels on him. We always knew you were some kind of dangerous freak. Hey, pedophile, what's up? The negative attention is too much for the Denver Nuggets. Chris Anderson is let go. He lost out on a lot of money, he lost out on endorsements, and I think that was probably the least of his words. It was his reputation that was took such a battering at that time. He felt like he lost that. He lost himself, he lost that ability, he may be out of the NBA, and what is this? So all that just came raining down. People hate when I share my opinions sometimes, and sometimes people start fuming when I don't. So, to avoid that, let me just briefly touch upon this, because it did rub me the wrong way as I was researching this case. Do I think on this particular point that Paris had some responsibility in terms of lying about her age? Sure. But then there was the age difference between Chris and Paris that is kind of alarming. Chris, at this point, was at least 32, 33 years old, and Paris, even if she lied about her age, said that she was 18. So, even though I can empathize with, you know, his father figure, with his lawyer, and state that, like, you know, it isn't like he dated kids, of course, he didn't have actual child pornography on his phone, in his possession, and also it was all consensual, and legal age is 15 and above, it still did rub me the wrong way that, again, there is that huge age difference that he just met up with this woman randomly, and even though she lied, she was 18. Again, in those cases, if that is your type, there's nothing wrong with age difference, but possibly just confirm it. I would really say, just ask for the ID. I don't know how you subtly do that, if your age difference makes you like people who are still teenagers, but just do it, just for the sake of it. Especially if you're like a pro athlete or a celebrity. Literally, just be like, you know, can I just see your ID? I don't care, like, hey, what does your passport picture look like? Do it subtly, just don't get yourself in these situations where it's like, mm, 18, Check it. When is your birthday? Just test them on their age like a bouncer at a nightclub. Because he just rubbed me the wrong way. Like, I understand. He's not a pedophile. But again, there's something iffy about every single point of this case. Okay, rant over. Moving on. This brings us to May of 2012, when the police in Colorado executed a search warrant at the house of Chris Anderson Birdman. And as expected, on this surface, they would find all of the electronic records showing that Chris and Paris communicated one another. But when they looked at the IP addresses where those communications would come from, they discover the IP addresses and phone numbers originated in Canada. So, they reach out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And eventually, the IP addresses will be traced back to a woman that conned both of them. Here we come to the rundown moment of the actual con, because by now you probably figure that Paris did indeed meet the real Birdman, the real Chris Anderson. So, how does this catfish operate? Sort of like an intermediary, a post office, the cyber post office of sorts, and this is where the crazy lies. 
because unlike in regular catfish situations, I don't want to call them normal, this is a normal behavior any way you see it, here both Paris and Chris were catfished to each other. So this person was like a bond in between, so Paris would be sending all of those pictures they would go to the catfish who was in the middle and then the catfish would be sending them back to Chris and vice versa. Chris is sending those mirror pictures that you have seen and then this woman is sending them to Paris. That is why there was misinformation because she would have kind of separate conversations with each and every one of them as she pleased. So that's why, you know, she would be promising Victoria's Secret thing and then maybe forget to tell it to Paris, maybe she was just getting off on it. The fact that, you know, oh, they're gonna have this weird conversation and, you know, I have matchmaked them, what is going to arise? Is any of them going to figure it the fuck out? But the crazy part of it is they have met in person, right? So when Chris was basically picking up Paris and, like, dropping her off to the airport, like, every part of that communication also had to go through the third party. Yeah, have to, but you get what I mean. It's a catfish that then has to be online at all times, which already tells you something about this person, to then be able to quickly respond to one another about the pickup location, about when are they meeting up, literally about any message, so that none of them figures it out. On top of that, then, with the new character that she had introduced of Tom Taylor, the best friend, that is the direct connection that she had with Paris. Now, this is just a personal opinion on the psychology of this woman after I have literally listened to all of the interviews and obviously read everything. It started kind of forming in my head, like, I think she genuinely thought this is how friendships worked. Let me know if you disagree by the end of this. But with her messages between Paris and Chris, it might have actually been a relationship, as if this is how she thought relationships worked. It will all make sense once you learn a bit more about the catfish. But then with Tom, it was genuinely for her to feel like, okay, cool, yeah, this is the catfishing situation. Like, you know, if it works out, what, what is my luck, really? Because technically, I'm the person that everything depends on, that this whole meetup depends on, because if I miss out on the message, the two of them don't meet up. And then with Tom Taylor and his introduction, she's actually acting as a friend, or whatever she has conjured up in her mind to be a friendship, or how a friendship should look like. And then once she can't use them anymore, or rather, once she can't figure out how to extort these people, then she just doesn't care. Because that's when she merged, basically, both of those people to, you know, put pressure on Paris in order to extort her. I don't know. Let me know how you see it. Because I just find this to have so many levels that are so messed up. And just her personality traits are kind of, like, all over the place. But I genuinely thought just when thinking about this moment before even looking into her history, that this is how she sees friendships and relationships working out. And that this is, to a certain degree, up until a certain point, actually normal to her. And then it starts becoming a ploy. And then you start seeing the true colors and why she's actually doing it.
Back to where we left it off with the IP addresses. In order for the police to actually locate this catfish, we have to introduce two of the best-named characters I have spoken about on this channel. One is the Penelope Garcia of this case, Sean Kronz, who was the person basically looking into the IP addresses. Like, from what I gathered, she is the cyber person in this case. And then the other person is an actual detective, a police officer, called Gord Olson. The investigation would follow Birdman, and as we know, he would travel often. So, usually, his messages would be all over the place. And yet again, you kind of have to think about this from the perspective of the catfish. Did she know this? Was this something that she has researched and thought would go into her favor? So, sometimes he might send a message from one place, sometimes from another. However, then they spotted a pattern. Over and over again, the messages would be traced to an unknown IP address that was located just north of the border. And this would be outside of the jurisdiction, and also, if you think about Easterville, it's not really a place where a pro athlete would go to visit, for any reason, especially not to play basketball. Then, as if going back in time, they would figure out how what was the actual sequence of this ploy. So, they would figure out that this person was acting as a filter, basically filtering through their messages, deciding what she wants to send to one another, in order to adjust the situation and manipulate it the way that she saw fit. And in terms of how, as we mentioned, it was a lot easier to get that blue tick, the verified profile on Facebook at the time, and with that discovery, they would discover that Chris and Paris weren't this woman's only victims. As they were now tracing the IP addresses to all of the fake accounts and all of the messages coming from those IP addresses, the police would determine that at least there were 11 victims that this catfish had claimed. According to some sources, some of them were actual celebrities. This isn't confirmed in the court documents, BTW, so just take it with a grain of salt. The true victims have only their initials stated in the court reports, even Paris and Chris do, so I'm not sure where these people have this information from. But according to some, one fake profile was of Brody Jenner, was the son of Bruce Jenner. Then there was the Playboy Playmate called Jesslyn Swedberg. There was Natalie Skye, who was an actress on a TV show Sons of Anarchy. And there was also a comedian called Joy Santagato. Again, take it with a grain of salt. Those are just the names I found in different articles. But again, not really confirmed by the court documents. Once they confirmed the victims, they also realized that this MO, this modus operandi, required no hacking, no special skills for this woman to even deploy, just pure manipulation. And when I say manipulation, I will just briefly outline her communication with some of the other victims here, and then we'll talk about it in depth later. Because I truly believe that she did research, at least, at least into Chris Anderson, because he was a public figure, so this kind of information would have already been available to her online. Why do I say that? Because during the course of the investigation, the police would uncover two additional victims. 
known in court documents as NP and JH. And the catfish, as fake Chris Anderson under the fake profile, would contact NP with a story about a young woman in northern Manitoba who lost everything in a fire. So the catfish under the fake profile of Chris Anderson would appeal to NP and to her charitable nature, according to court documents, and convince her to donate about 2,000 to 3,000 worth of clothing. This would be sent to the catfish's address in Easterville. And that brings us to this catfish's longest-running con. In May of 2012, as the news broke on Chris Anderson and the police is investigating this, a Douglas County police officer gets in touch with the local police officer that's investigating Birdman. They give them the details of this Texas woman who will be referred to here as J.H., or better known as the woman I told you to pin in your head from earlier on. And this woman started chatting with one such Tom Taylor. As we now know, Tom Taylor is this catfish that is just working out all of these different ploys on the side. And the police would uncover that the fake TT, fake Tom Taylor profile, was actually involved in a romantic relationship with this woman from Texas that lasted, according to court records, for eight years. So this would have been her longest-running con. And the two of them communicated on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Now, the extent that this went to is truly horrifying. So the catfish would get the recordings of a male voice, fuck knows from where, from whom, and then she would, of course, then just leave them, send them to this victim, J.H. She would also get nude pictures from somebody who was supposed to be Tom Taylor in order to send them to J.H., to this Texas woman. This isn't where this stops, though, because the fake Tom Taylor persona would also create other fake personas, like Tom Taylor's mother, ex-wife, and brother that were used to convince J.H. that Tom Taylor is indeed a real person. Just play Sims. Tits were not calm. Tits were not calm during this video. Just just calm down. Stop. Cut the effort. Just play Sims. If you have this imagination, if you're imagining this whole family in your head, stop defrauding people. Just play online games. Plenty of them. Shelly then seduced her using the Tom character. Once the woman had fallen for Tom, Shelly used Tom to manipulate her to serve as a point of contact in Shelly's blackmail schemes. When Shelly was blackmailing Chris, she ran the money through the Texas woman so Shelly wouldn't be traced. It was diabolical. I've never really talked about this with anybody else. Shelly, as this male persona, really put this Texas woman through an emotional ringer. And when we showed up there, and told her, look, you were talking to Shelly Charche. She was devastated. It was like we were telling her that somebody had died. She hadn't figured it out. No. Wow. As always, just as I try to lighten up a story a little bit, it gets really, really morbid. So here, as we know from everything, is when the extortion kicks in, because this catfish has gotten everything and anything that she wanted out of this. It's not friendly anymore. It doesn't serve the purpose for her because she's running different ploys on the side. 
as you know by now. So, this is when she starts asking for money. And of course, she doesn't do it in any normal way yet again, even though if this is a relationship, why wouldn't this person then believe that she, as Tom Taylor, needs that money? Yet again, probably because of her actual skills, because there is always that point of doubt, and there is always that point that she doesn't know how to actually have relationships and friendships. So she doesn't know what is normal and what isn't. So in the case of J.H., the fake Tom Taylor started to manipulate J.H. in order to have her send him the money. So, at first, it was iTunes cards, it was Xbox credits and books. And then, the Tom Taylor persona became abusive and controlling. The catfish started portraying this fake persona, Tom Taylor, as a suicidal person, and at time, even convinced this Texas woman, J.H., that he had cheated on her. Later in the conversations with the police, this woman would say that sometimes she wouldn't eat in order to send the money to who she thought was her boyfriend. And also, the catfish used J.H. to accept the extorted money from Chris Anderson, that $3,000, so it's not connected to her. <sighs> Somehow, guys, this isn't where it stops. Because once they knock on the door of that catfish, once they connect all of the IP addresses, and once they actually arrest this person, she will still find a way to get this longest-running con, to get this victim, J.H., to try to partially take responsibility. When she gets arrested, which will be in January of 2013, they will take her access to the internet, because it's her weapon of choice, it's how she committed these cons. And even then, this catfish would get a cell phone with the assistance of a family member. And during that time, she had fake persona of Tom Taylor still communicate with this long-term girlfriend, now J.H., to attempt to have J.H. take the rap for herself. The emotional blackmail there was that, by this point, this Tom Taylor persona already introduced all of these other fake personas, including his own daughter. So, again, in this sort of messed-up emotional blackmail, this catfish would try to convince this Texas woman to basically take the rap, to take some part of the blame in order for Tom Taylor's daughter not to be left alone, because then her father will be in jail if he is actually accused of this. Which is so, so, so messed up, but also it just shows such a detachment from reality because the person that is charged isn't Tom Taylor, so I'm not sure how she thought this would go, that she's just going to, like, fess up to this person, that she is really who she is, and that she doesn't have a daughter, but then she's using the daughter for emotional blackmail. It is so convoluted that you can't even... You can't even... Even with all of the emotional abuse that this catfish would put this victim through, once she was finally arrested and exposed, J.H. was still devastated by this, because she has spent eight years of her life believing that this was a real relationship, and it just ended up being a sham. 
Now that you have the overview of the scope of damage this woman was involved in and actually manipulated, conjured up herself, in real time, for about five months, Birdman is just staying low. It took, yes, five to six months for them to actually trace it back to her, for them to actually find out then, you know, one victim after the next. And during that time, as expected, Chris isn't playing for anybody. However, then the assistant general for Miami Heat gets in touch with Bryant. So she knew the lawyer and then she knew Chris and she decided to sort of take a chance on him, which considering the charges that he was supposedly to face, if this was just a clear-cut investigation, is kind of brave of her, so she just gave him like a short trial period to prove himself. And around the same time, the two coolest named people of this whole episode, Olsen and Kronz, had a breakthrough. They finally pinpointed this small house in central Manitoba, in Easterville, and they knocked on the door of a woman called Shelley Chartier. So let's speak about Shelley. And if this isn't your first true crime video, a few things will most definitely stand out. If thinking about a profile of somebody who would commit something like this, Shelley would fit it to a T. She was an Aboriginal woman from Chemawawin Cree Nation. And this is the First Nations community that's located in the lower region of northern Manitoba, next to Easterville. She would be 27 years old when her offenses began. So by the point that she would have served the sentence and in most of the interviews that you are viewing where um, the catfish guys are actually interviewing her, she would be 32 or 33 years old. Just wanted to point that out, put an emphasis on that. This isn't like a teenager, somebody just doing it for fun. This is a full-time job for this woman. Shelley never met her father and her mom, Delia, was actually bedridden with rheumatoid arthritis for most of her life. In this interview, the boys speak with the mom and she actually says the last time that she walked was when she carried Shelley from the hospital to the house. And from that point on, she would actually be raised by her aunt, called Kathy George, and the aunt would be the primary caregiver to her mom as well. But then, one morning in 2012, Shelley would wake up to discover that her aunt died in her sleep, leaving her to care for her mom on her own. As you could imagine, this and a couple of other things that we're gonna speak about would leave Shelley a recluse of sorts. She wouldn't have any medical or forensic reports to her name, meaning that nobody had ever assessed her mental health. And according to her mom, she had no mental health issues. But in order to take care of her mom, and also because in grade six, she would be taken out of school due to bullying after having been stabbed in the back with a pencil, she would drop out of school and started living a completely isolated life. In this interview, she would say that she went through a period where she didn't leave her house for 11 years. She tells us she was bullied at school and dropped out at age 12. For so many kids that age, that's what life is about, school. So what did you do with yourself? I got online. I went through a period where I didn't leave my house for 11 years. 11 years? Mm -hmm. 
isolated with little contact with the outside world, Shelley's reality is a far cry from Paris Dunn's glittering California existence and the glam life of NBA star Chris Anderson. I'm really trying to feel some sympathy, but you haven't heard half of it yet. So when I listened to it first, I just thought nobody kidnapped you, girl. I understand you're taking care of your bedridden mom, but just go get some fresh air. Go for a walk, do your 10K steps. She doesn't. She, because of her isolation, because she was technically a recluse, she was never exposed to any of her cultural traditions. She chose to further isolate herself and just preferred to be around grown-ups, even in her early days, even when she dropped out of school. And it would be said that the only social event that she attended in her life would be her uncle's wedding when she was eight years old. In this latest interview that she did, she said she didn't leave the house. She was a hermit for about 11 to 12 years because her house is where she felt safe and she had to take care of her mom. Why, you got big plans later? I'm going to the store. You didn't used to go out to the store ever, right? Never. Why do you think you didn't leave the house for so long? Because I'm safe inside. Her only link to the outside world became her internet connection. And as we know, the internet came to Easterville then. So in early 2011, she started setting up these fake Facebook profiles for different celebrities. According to the court records, in 2003, Shelley was 18 years old. And this is when she would join the internet and sort of start, again, immediately from the get-go, creating these false personas. But it wouldn't be until 2011 that she would start extorting people. So in 2003, she got online and started impersonating Eminem. She got integrated into multiple chat rooms and eventually this led to a lifestyle that is described as a fantasy-type experience where the catfish, in this case Shelly, gets skilled at manipulating and deceiving others when they choose to spend their time online. So by 2011, her skills have been developed and she started exploiting the relationship that she has been building. And then, after creation of multiple false personas and profiles, in my head at least, she probably thought, okay, which ones are getting me the most traction? And then, that one day, Paris just appeared to comment on Chris's profile with her own phone number. And she thought, well, this is easy. Let me just try and see what results, what comes out of it. We know what happens from that point on. And then, at some point, she introduces Tom Taylor. She introduces the friend in this situation. Possibly because it is the only way she knows how friendships work. And... Probably because there's something more sinister to it, because finally she can have the inside information on this whole fake relationship that she has set up. Because then she can know if any of these two parties is suspecting anything, or rather if the intended victim is suspecting anything at all. The reporter that wrote on this story would say that she constantly tries to downplay her actions, to pass it off on others, and to make it seem as if she was just some innocent bystander who got caught up in all of this. There are a couple of points, in particular in her latest interview that I could find from 2017 for that catfish episode, 
where you can just see the display of the lack of remorse and just leave you feeling all iffy and thinking what should I be thinking about this woman? Should I trust anything that's coming out of her mouth? So let me point out a couple. There is a point in this interview when she blatantly blames Paris for it, saying that you just wouldn't fly somewhere to see the person that you have met online. Talk to the person they're going to see, too. On the phone? Yeah, or Skype them or something. They don't just fly somewhere and not know this person. So you're saying that's sort of on her, that she went to go see him without knowing who he was? Yeah, because... I didn't tell her to fly down there. I just asked her if she would. Then we have that whole conversation where she again tries to blame yet another victim, the Texas woman, saying that she was the one that knew of everything, that knew that everything was happening, that knew that she was chatting with the right person, with Shelly, and that she was the one even egging it on to this matchmaking between Chris and Paris. And so what did you feel when you saw that? really bad and scared for him and for me that's when i started freaking out and i said what do i do my friend the texas woman said delete the app and they can't trace you but they dug deeper and found me the most interesting thing for me to hear is the difference in your story about this woman in Texas versus the way the police describe her involvement. And here, during that conversation, she also, in speaking of Chris, says that she's scared for him, but for herself. And then you see that she's a bit more scared for herself because she continues to talk about, oh, I was thinking, what do I do now? What do I do? And then this friend of mine, this Texas woman, just appeared to be there and say delete the app, which, according to the police accounts, according to the court records, never happened the way that Shelley said it did. The woman from Texas, J.H., was just another victim. Sounds like this woman in Texas is telling you what to do a lot. Yeah. And yet she seems to have been painted as this victim. I don't believe she was a victim. In fact, she was sort of an active participant. Yeah. She tried to get 10,000 from him. And she admitted that to the cops. So she said, I'll negotiate because he's worth millions. And one day she was in a meeting. She told me not to text her until five. And I got an email. I think it was 2000 or 3000 Right. The last offer, take it or leave it. And I said, okay. Because I'm usually let's hope to be like, okay, first thing. During this interview, she also goes on to invent this whole story where this woman from Texas and her actually split the money. How Tom Taylor did exist, she had nothing to do with that profile, of course, and this Tom Taylor made this Texas woman egg them all on to actually ask for more money, starting off with 10k from Chris Anderson. I'm not sure if you're following because I have slowed down so many times to ask for 10k from Chris Anderson. But then, because she was at work and wasn't answering Shelly's calls, Shelly said, Give me 3k. So she decided on that last offer, but it's all that woman's idea. And they split the money, they did split the money, so they split the 3k between them. Apparently there's an email, there's apparently, according to Shelley, all of these receipts that um, nobody really asked for <laughs> in any of these. 
freaking catfish documentary and any of these videos, nobody really asked for it. So, uh, yet again, it is just her word against the world. I think that the police here did their due diligence and that these documents do not exist. And it's just yet another display of Shelley portraying everybody else as a perpetrator and herself as a victim. Uh, he's like, okay, you give me a place to fax some papers and you sign them. And I, I thought, no, like, that's too sketchy. And then I told, okay, it's gonna be 2,000 or 3,000. Then she got really mad. She's like, you're idiot. You could have gotten more. Like, you're so stupid. So... I said, well, just drop it, because he's trying to fax stuff and uh, could trace us. And she said, don't worry, I'm going to print it out at my work, and then I'll just fax it back. So she printed it out, signed it, faxed it back, and she admitted that to the cops. If that's true, and this woman from Texas was trying to get you more money, was that because she thought she'd be getting some of it? Oh, she did get half. You were going to split it? We did. You did split it? You did split it? Yeah. And what she said that Tom made her manipulated her into doing it. She also admits to never thinking that Paris or Chris will ever be emotionally scarred. Rather, she just went back and forth because she's stupid. She didn't know anyone in the NBA that wasn't like her target group or anything like that. She just thought it was cool. This meant that at first she wanted to see if they will believe it. And then, if they will, she doesn't know why. No, I did not think of the emotional scarring, I guess, like on Paris. But yet you continue to go back and forth. Mm -hmm. How come? Because I'm stupid. Just plain and simple. And I've never known people like that. I never knew anybody in the NBA. And I thought, like, I thought that was cool, I guess. I find her repeating that she's stupid to be particularly interesting. Because she does it in this interview and she did it in the earlier one for 2020. And I just find it bizarre because a lot of people that aren't qualified online, including me, do think that she has some sociopathic traits. That there's not much empathy to this woman. That she just, beyond not knowing how the world works because she was a recluse, also, there is something to her personality traits. Again, never diagnosed or anything like that. However, I feel like she's trying to replace the lack of empathy that she has. She's trying to replace all the feelings that she probably, again, thinks the world sees that way with saying she's stupid. So instead of saying, I'm sorry, oh my god, like, I'm gonna work on myself, she just brushes it off being like, I must have done it because I'm stupid, without any actual reflection or understanding of why what she did was actually so messed up and so wrong. Back yet again with that knock at the door that resulted in a search warrant being conducted in that house, with them finding out that that is indeed the IP address where all of the communications with all the victims have come from, Shalik has finally been charged. Now, she will say that she pled guilty because she was pregnant at the time, never confirmed from, again, anything that I have seen, and from, again, her interviews, I don't think she still has a child, and that her husband was there. 
So she didn't want to leave them alone, this baby that she supposedly was to have. So in court, they told her that if she pleads guilty, she will get house arrest. Again, Shelley's words confirmed nowhere. Now, if you're thinking, did we miss out on a couple of steps here? Where did this husband come from? Where did this child come from? Well, I have the answers for the husband, because that literally did come out of nowhere. So she will be brought before the court to be sentenced for extortion, uttering threats to cause bodily harm, fraud under 5,000, and four counts of personation between 2011 and 2013. Now, before that trial even begins, she ends up meeting a boyfriend. So, in the middle of all of her scams, this is sometime in 2013. And this is so sinister, if you have been following this story in detail, she is playing Call of Duty online. Yeah. It all comes to the Xbox that she extorted from the woman from Texas that she paid for, and then Call of Duty, which somehow connects everybody in this case. So Shelly's online playing Call of Duty while also chatting and conducting, like, I don't know, 11 freaking scams on the side, and she online starts chatting with this guy called Rob Marco. So... She would say, I heard him talking, and I liked his voice because he has a deep voice. So I shanked him in a game, because every time I do it, he would talk. And people say the romance is dead. On November the 22nd, 2014, they will finally meet face to face, because Rob was to fly to Easterville from New York. Now... <laughs> This then speeds up out of nowhere. It just freaking happens, and they mention it during this video like it's nothing. This is why I love 2020. It's just the most ridiculous shit that you can ever hear online. He goes to Canada to meet her. And then, as if that wasn't a red flag, he just... <laughs> what? Going to Canada is a red flag. Once he actually lands in Canada, he then needs to drive for five hours to freaking Easterville, in the middle of nowhere, to find this woman. Like, I would think I'm catfish. Like, I don't care. Like, I would think, like, this is the whole catfishing situation. But no, somehow here she's the real person. And this is a real relationship. And then, so this is November 22nd, Christmas Day, they get married in Shelley's kitchen. <laughs> in PJs. And she just says it like this is the proudest moment of her life. And this reporter that is there on this story is like, I mean, that's a good location. But is it? It's her kitchen, though. It's like, what if she this house gets demolished? If she finally moves the fuck out? It's like, okay. Cool. Well, clearly everybody cared about that wedding. And um, that's that love story. According to her, she was pregnant then when she was to appear in a courtroom, and that's why she pled guilty, so that she's sent to house arrest, which is just such a bizarre thing that you want to be sent back to that same house over and over again. Because Shelley lives in the alternate universe and nobody actually promised her the house arrest, because she's facing seven counts of just different malicious things, fraud, impersonation, extortion, uttering threats, in August of 2015, the community center in Easterville is transformed into a courtroom just for her. 
And here she is finally to face the justice for her crimes. So now we're gonna speak about the trial and the aggravating and unmitigating circumstances where we're gonna find a bit more about the victims and about Shelley. I will be putting the screenshots of the court documents on the screen if you wanna read in depth, because I realize this isn't as short of a video as I intended it to be. So in terms of aggravating circumstances, they looked into the impact that she has had on the victims' lives. So starting off with Chris, here the courts had to consider the impact she has had on his reputation, the fact that she caused him to lose his playing contract, his marketability, and the ability to give back to the community through working with underprivileged children. Because of the charges that he was facing, Shelley also came close to ruining everything that he had worked for all of his life. In terms of Chris and the offenses against him, they also looked at the fact that she just had no insight into the crimes, into the scope and the gravity of the situation, and that she has showed no remorse. Just like with Paris, here she thought she deserves to be recognized for the crimes, for the influence of the crimes that she has done. In particular, with Chris, it was his contract with Miami Heat. She stated, it was a good thing, doesn't it seem like it? For me, it's not. She then pointed out that it wasn't her who phoned the police and told the writer of the pre-sentence report. I never say I'm sorry. I don't say bad things to people unless I mean it, so I don't have to say sorry. The court documents then point out that she did say in court that she is sorry for all of this, she just doesn't want to go to jail during her pre-sentencing, when she thought she was going to be put on the house arrest. So that, that means that she has no insight into the fact that she was using the victims in the players in this fantasy world that she has thought of. Instead, her regret is focused on the possibility of jail rather than the position that she put her victims in. The courts have looked into the offenses and, in terms of charges, what kind of sentence she should be serving. So, whether it should be consecutive or concurrent. Concurrent meaning served at the same time. So, what was decided in the end was that for Chris, Paris, and the victim just named NP in the court records, she was to serve them on a concurrent basis because she was basically catfishing them at the same time. Now, the other two counts, so the personation of Tom Taylor, I forget to emphasize that Tom Taylor is also a real person here, that he is a professional video game player, that she has just, again, took just random person's identity, just like she did with Chris Anderson. And then J.H., the woman from Texas, her longest-running con, there, she is to serve these sentences in a consecutive way. This is because these offenses were perpetrated over a longer period of time and also impacted victims in a different kind of way. With both of those also, what the prosecution really had going for them were the aggravating circumstances, when you think about it. Because here they had the relationship built up that lasted for a longest period of time, they had this whole introduction of the other personas, especially with Tom Taylor. They had also the emotional 
damage, the emotional abuse towards JH, towards the woman in Texas, and trying to get them to take the blame for her actions. So all of these counted as the aggravating factors for Shelley. The courts summarized those as the magnitude, complexity, duration, or degree of planning of the fraud committed as significant, then the offense had a significant impact on the victims given their personal circumstances, including their age, health, and financial situation, and finally, that Shelley concealed or destroyed records related to the fraud or to the proceeds of the fraud. When it comes to her JH offenses, which is when you would at least expect she tried in the pre-sentencing report, at least just try to fake some empathy. I don't know, just say I'm sorry, it wouldn't kill you. Like, people would know it's fake, it wouldn't kill you. Instead, Shelley again said, I don't apologize for anything. I try my best to avoid people so I don't get in trouble with them and avoid situations so I don't have to apologize for anything. If there is anything... I can do to prove I'm sorry, I will. I want them to know I'll do anything, I don't want to go back to jail. Given that she also tried to convince JH to take the rep, to take the responsibility for her own actions, this would just further add to the list of the aggravating circumstances that they're going to look at because of her lack of insight and remorse. Then if you think about the offenses against Paris, yes, we have the personation, of her, of her own mom, but we also have the actual threats of bodily harm that were taken seriously because they were made with somebody who had the power and who had the information and who had the leverage in this situation. And finally, when they looked at the victim NP, which debatably was impacted the least, the fact that Shelley again tried to play to the charitable spirit of this woman, tried to again use Chris Anderson's background, so this is the one where supposedly Chris's somebody lost everything in the fire and that this person was to donate and because she was such a fan she did, again because she played to the charitable nature of this woman and again it was callous because she knew of Chris's background and used his own details, his own sight. This again was added to the list of the aggravating circumstances against her. With the plentiful of aggravating circumstances that we have just gone through, the prosecution would argue that Shelley was motivated by a financial gain. They acknowledged the few mitigating circumstances that we are yet to talk about, about her rough upbringing, about her being a recluse, and have recommended a sentence inside of a jail cell for a period of between 16 to 18 months, to be followed by two years of probation. Now, the defense would, of course, try to make this woman look human. I don't know how else to say it. They would say that in the light of blinding poverty that is evident from her background, her motivation, in order to extort people to, for financial gain should be put into that context. Come on, you get it. She extorted money because she was poor. They also said that, yes, even though she was reclusive in the last number of years, her world is now changed with the addition of a husband. And therefore, house arrest would be meaningful to her as a punishment. 
Now on to the mitigating circumstances. Here, this is so interesting to me, because again of her motivations. So they have given such toll, such weight to her pleading guilty. And I understand why, from the victim's point of view, so that, you know, the woman from Texas didn't have to actually travel, which would have taken even further emotional toll on her. Paris's mom then didn't have to, like, testify or, from what I've seen, even make a statement. She saved, inevitably, a lot of police money, resources, on a case that is literally as black and white as it can be. So... That's That part I understand, but we know why she pled guilty. We know that, again, she pled guilty purely for her selfish reasons. Purely because she has a husband, she was pregnant, she again wanted to stay at home and not go to jail. So, you again consider motivations there. They should kind of be put towards the aggravating circumstances, if you ask me. But again, because of the impact this had on the victims and it didn't provide them with any emotional damage, it was considered mitigating circumstance. And now, again, something that they have to look at is that she had no previous criminal background. Well, some would say that she was plotting this ever since she was 18, but yet again, she was never charged, never caught and brought to trial before. They also took into consideration her family life, the fact that she was taking care of her bedridden mom, that there were some alcohol addictions, according to court documents in the family, that she was never raised with the guidance of her dad. And according to the court documents, her computer usage became criminal around the time that her aunt had died. And we know that the aunt was basically the parent. She was the caregiver to her mom, and she was the one who took care of Shelley when she was younger. And finally, and I am so glad that this was included as a mitigating circumstance, because out of everything, it should have been. And that is the shame to the community. Her circumstances as an Aboriginal offender. So her arrest, it was public, it was probably the only thing that was even remotely dramatic happening in Easterville back then, caused a great deal of media attention, and media attention towards her home community. This in turn resulted in the community feeling that they have been negatively and unfairly judged by the outside world. They had to take into consideration that Chemawawin Cree Nation shows the impact of colonization on Canadian Aboriginal culture. So that this community was already dealing with a number of issues like substance abuse, family violence, high unemployment, even before this has taken place. So in context, the Supreme Court of Canada directed the courts that they should consider the unique circumstances of Aboriginal offenders in a way of contextualizing her background. The court was to take notice of the history of colonialism, displacement, residential schools, and how that history then continues in particular to her story, how it applies to lower income, to the fact that she never had a job, to the higher unemployment rates, and then, I mean, just in general, how reckless she actually was. In context of the Chartier family, the effects of colonization had an impact on them. Her grandparents were actually residential school survivors. 
Shelley grew up in poverty, and even though she wasn't impacted by substance abuse and domestic violence herself, she was impacted by the fact that these things were happening around her, in her own family. And that resulted in all of the reclusive tendencies in some way. It translated in her just wanting to shut down from the world, and she herself said that home is the only place where she felt safe. It is likely taking that into consideration, that she turned to this fantasy world, to the internet, as a coping mechanism to deal with the real world that was around her. And in that respect, they had to take that as a mitigating circumstance, because in the context of her background, that brings some perspective to her present behavior and circumstances. Then came along Shelley's sentencing, and the whole reason why we went through the mitigating and aggravating circumstances here, beyond the fact that that's pretty much the only thing that is mentioned in the court documents, it is in order for you to understand why she got the sentence that she did. Because they really looked at Shelley and at all of these circumstances in order to see how best to make sure that she is to make reparations to her own community and also how she is best to learn to become a contributing member of the society and also, again, looking into how she can do it in her own community in Easterville. So they looked at each count, and as I mentioned, three were supposed to be served concurrently and two consecutively. And they looked at the high degree of the victim impact, the inability for her to make reparations to her victims, and also accounting for the mitigating background factors. So, in the end, her sentence was supposed to be 23 months of what they called real jail. So, I guess not community service? I don't know, is there a fake jail? However, that's when they had to consider the mitigating circumstances and take one last look to determine which sentence would be just and appropriate. And they decided to give her 18 months in jail and then two years of probation. The conditions of her probation are as you would think they would be, so to keep the good behavior, not get charged again, no contact or communication directly with any of the victims, notify the courts if she's to move anywhere, change of literally anything, and then, finally, she doesn't have access to the internet except for educational and employment purposes while under the supervision of probation services. Well, rather, she didn't have, because she already served her time, and she is out now. So, the time that she has served in prison... Also, I don't know how that worked on house threats. Like, what, everybody else has the internet but her. Listen, it's like, the lines are convoluted here. But in her interview with the Catfish Boys, she says that in prison, she learned how to talk to people. She said that when she got sentenced, she, of course, wasn't happy. She wanted the house arrest. But then, once she did it, she was happy she got through it. In this interview, she speaks about prison, like how she was doing some DIY in there, what she made, and then how this girl tried to buy off the picture of her dog in there. And for the first time, you see something personal shine through Shelley. You see that she actually has, like, some real-life stories. It's like, it's real memories. And it's so sad 
and weird at the same time because you're like how am I supposed to freaking feel like you found the prison the time in prison to be the best time of your life that is some universe that I just cannot comprehend what else Unless, can you maybe show me a little more of the house a little tour yeah here's the kitchen we got married right here yeah we did this was the spot? Yeah, she was like standing right here. Look that way. Do you want to see what I made in jail? Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, here's yeah, a picture sure. of my dog. A girl in jail tried to buy this picture off of me for chips. <laughs> She's very happy. Out of those 18 months, she would end up only serving 12. And then she was released to serve probation outside in October 2016. She then went to serve two years of probation. And according to even the last the Catfish episode, I think, was the last that was done on this case, a lot of people still think that there is an active warrant for her arrest in the U.S. because some of her charges have happened there. The Texas woman, for example. And there is where they want her to go, a lot of people online, because she would get 24 to 48 years in jail. The difference in justice system is a bit off. But this is really where this story dies down. So let me tell you where these people are now, according to the internet, and then wrap it up with some final things to ponder on, and the real reason why we are here. Will Shelley reoffend again? So, in terms of Paris, the model, the latest I have seen is that she has married this guy who is 72 years old and she is, no, sorry, he's 75 and she is 27 or 28 now. I think her birthday is actually today, on the day I'm recording this, which is insane. But hey, she married this American Pie singer, Don McLean, who has a star at the Hollywood Boulevard from literally the one single article that I have read. And uh, that's pretty much that. She is still an internet personality. She posed for Maxim and she's living her best life, I guess. Birdman was traded to a different club called Hornets in 2017. Then he went to play for Big Free. So I looked at this. I don't fully understand it. So let me read up on this. So Big Free is a free-on-free basketball league that was founded by none other than Ice Cube. Birdman excelled here as well and he won the league championship in 2018. He was named their defensive player of the year for that season. He hasn't really made headlines recently either. From what I've seen, he is now engaged and he is keeping a low profile. So let us end this the way that the catfish episode ended. Shelly did sit in front of the catfish guys. I believe I have pronounced Neve's name wrong. Love it. Love, love being a fake fan. That's who I am internally. She says she did serve her time. I mean, 12 months a year is a long time behind bars. A lot of people will disagree, as the boys have said to her face, but she believes it's a long time. She wants you, yeah, you, to ponder, looking back at your mistakes, would you sit down and think like, oh my god, I wish, I wish I was punished more. I wish I have paid for this mistake for a longer period of time. 
and she believes you would come to a conclusion that you wouldn't want that. In that interview from 2017, she said she does want to have his kid, the husband was sitting next to her, and she will definitely not catfish again. So it's safe to say you're never going to catfish again? Definitely not. And that is the story of Shelley Chartier. Will she strike again? Or will she, for a change, now that she can go back online, use her skills towards something good? We haven't really heard of Shelley Chartier, and that is why I have done this story today since then. I tried to look it up, you know, has she been up to something good, something not really good? There was kind of a documentary done for her, again, in 2017, and that is really where this story just dies down of the face of the earth, of the internet, completely. So, the question is off to you. Will she reoffend again? And if so, when? Because there's been a grace period, you know? There's been a couple of years now, and she apparently hasn't. She has followed, you know, a different kind of pathway. I just find it so iffy. It's just the universe of Shelley chartier than, like, the rest of the world, and they're not on the same wavelength. I just wonder what, again, would need to happen for this woman to get online and to reoffend, or maybe is she again that good that she has just been getting away with it that we just don't know about it? You let me know. I truly don't know, because there's so many personality traits with this woman where I just see it as a sort of addiction. Unless she has somehow now gotten counseling, I think it was part of her probation from what I've read, she got some mental health help, like she is in an actual normal human relationship with this husband of hers and has kind of maybe reached out to make any friends or anything and knows more of how, like, real life works. If she has established any healthy real-life relationships, I would believe, I'd like to believe, I'd really like her not to have scammed anybody or scamming the future ever again, because this was insane. This is just one of the most calculating, just gut-wrenching stories that I have heard about in the longest time. It just goes to levels. To some levels where you have to think, like, can she really stop? Can she really stop after only spending 12 months in jail? It's just so layered. It's so insane. So, you guys let me know what you think about this one. And I'm gonna do my usual Tuesday run to um, KFC if it's still open for a hot chocolate and then, I don't know, do a walk run. Yeah, walk run isn't usually a terminology people are familiar with. <laughs> you wanna explain what a walk run is? It's the run where I can't be asked, so I walk half of it. It's pretty simple. <laughs> I think they got it, even before you actually explain it. You got it? You got it. See. <laughs> Let me know what you think about this one. Oh boy, the editing is gonna be a bitch. Is your little thing twisted also because of how you hold your devices? We had this talk. Have you watched every single video? If not, jump on it. Like and subscribe. Share, you fuckers. Okay. Yeah. That is the good way to end it. <laughs> what to call people? <laughs> So tired. So tired of life.
But we move on. Yeah, that's how we do it. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> what was this ending? <laughs> Please, go to my Wonders on her own existence. Bye. What you have on the screen there? What you have on the screen there? What you have? It's just YouTube. What is it on YouTube? What is it? Let's go into Maya's private eye. Uh, Resistencia. Okay. Okay. Zoom in on the candle for no fucking reason. <laughs> look at look at the fingers you don't see. It's dirt. It's mustard or whatever. It's mustard. Actually, see. Okay, it's hard. Are you okay today? No, clearly not. Clearly not mentally alright. Bye, bye guys.